Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumble.org. Last week we celebrated Easter, the reality that Jesus is risen and reigning. He's conquered sin and death. It's the high point of the Christian calendar. I, I made the comment last week that without Easter, none of it matters. Nothing that we do as Christians matters if Jesus is still in the grave. Let's pack up and go home and find something else to do on Sunday mornings. But he, he is alive. He has risen. He is in heaven now. And this Sunday, I, I want to unpack what does that mean for us? How, how is that good news for us every week? Not, not just on Easter Sunday. What's the benefit of a risen and reigning Savior? To help us un- understand that, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 7 verses 22 through 28. So let's read that, and then we'll dive in. Hebrews 7, 22 through 28. The author of Hebrews says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." We're doing the On the Same Page reading program. Some of you are participating in that. And we're now in Deuteronomy. We're almost done with the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses, this foundational piece of of Scripture. And in the book of Exodus, the second half of Exodus, the first half of Exodus is exciting, It's this narrative of God rescuing his people from Egypt and bringing them through the Red Sea and uh, the manna from heaven, all all these exciting things. But then the second half, it slows way down and we start to get all these laws. And the second half of Exodus focuses on the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the place that represented God's presence on earth. Inside the tabernacle was this holy of holies, and in the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which, which represented the throne of God. That's where God is on earth. And God told Moses exactly how to build 
the, the tabernacle and exactly how to furnish it and exactly what, what to do with it, how to set it up, where to put it, all, all of these details. And there's a lot of details in the second half of Exodus. But the whole point is God saying, I'm coming down and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be present with you. I'm going to be here on earth and you can come to be by me. And I just read to open up our service, Psalm 1611, David says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I want to be where I can be happy forever, 100%, 100% happy for eternity. That's where I want to be. And, and Scripture tells us the only place that you can be 100% happy for eternity is in God's presence. And so the reality that God is telling his people, here's the tabernacle, here's where you can be in my presence, that's good news. That's welcome news to, to God's people. They're excited about this, and they do everything God tells them to. They build this tabernacle, and they furnish it exactly the way that God tells them to. And you get to the end of Exodus when they dedicate the tabernacle, basically the grand opening of the tabernacle, and look at what happens at the very end of Exodus. The last few verses in chapter 40, verse 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, exactly like God said. God, they open up the tabernacle and God comes down and comes into the tabernacle. His glory filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's not good news. God is right there. He has filled the tabernacle with his glory but Moses can't even go in. He's this close, but he can't enter in to the tabernacle. There's a problem at the end of Exodus. God is there. God has given his people a place where he will dwell, but they can't enter in. They can't get in to the tabernacle, which is why we turn the page to Leviticus. The second half of Exodus is about preparing a place for God to be with his people. And then the book of Leviticus is preparing God's people to be in that place. That's where the sacrificial system comes in. The, the purpose of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is to purify God's people so that they can enter into God's presence without being burnt to a crisp without being utterly destroyed. That's why you have all, the, all of these different sacrifices and all of these details for how to offer these sacrifices. And for the sacrificial system to work, they needed someone to do it. They needed someone to take care of that, an expert in the sacrificial system, and that's the priests, and specifically the high priest. And Leviticus focuses a lot of its energy on the sacrifices, but also on the person making the sacrifice, the, the high priest. And the, the priest, he acts as the go-between. 
here's God in his, temp- in his tabernacle, and here's sinful Israel outside of the tent, and for them to get into the tent, they need someone to help them. They need, they need a, a, an intermediary, someone to bring them safely into God's presence. And the, the calling for this high priest was high. The, the requirements for the high priest was really strict. And it makes me think, when you read the first few chapters of Leviticus, focusing on preparing the priest, it made me think of an astronaut going on a spacewalk. If you've watched documentaries or seen movies, Apollo 13, the, when these astronauts prepare to go into space, they are extraordinarily careful. They have this long checklist of things that they have to do as they're putting on their spacesuit, right? They're, they're extraordinarily detail-oriented. And the guy, the, the astronaut himself, he's not complaining about how many steps there are before he goes into space. Because he knows, if I skip a step, if I mess up, I'm dead. I will, I'm, I'm going to be killed immediately if I, st- if I open up the hatch and step into space. I'm, I'm toast. And it's, it's similar for these priests. They had to exercise extreme caution, and they had to ensure strict adherence to protocol, or they're going to risk death. If you look at those first few chapters of Leviticus, the priest had to wash himself He had to literally make himself physically clean. And then he had to dress himself. And he had to dress himself exactly the way God told him to dress himself with exactly the right uh, garments, these priestly robes. He couldn't just wear whatever he wanted. He had to wear what God told him to wear, just like an astronaut can't go into space in sweatpants. They have to wear the space suit. So he had to wear these priestly robes And then he had to offer a sacrifice for himself. He had to purify himself. So they kill this animal, and then they take the blood from that animal. If you remember, if you read Leviticus, they they rub the blood on his right ear, and then they rub the blood on his right thumb, and then they rub the blood on his right toe. It's weird, right? But it's just signifying that blood is covering him from head to toe that he's a sinful man and he needs the blood of this animal to atone for his sin. And so now he's ready. He's, he's prepared for his spacewalk. He's prepared to enter into the presence of God. And now he's, he's taking God's people with him into God's presence. He's offered the sacrifice for himself and now he offers a sacrifice for the people kills an animal, puts it on the altar, takes the blood of that animal and, and dips the hyssop branch, right? Essentially the end of a broom, dips, dips the brush into the blood and then sprinkles the blood on the people. Imagine me up here with my bucket of blood, dipping the brush and then sprinkling you guys. That's how it worked, because they had to, if you want to go into God's presence, you have to be covered with blood. You have sinned. Someone deserves punishment for that sin. And, and these animals stood in the way. 
These animals took that sin. They, they were, the people were sprinkled with the blood. Which brings us to Leviticus chapter 9. Moses has prepared Aaron. Aaron's the first high priest. He's Moses' brother. Prepares Aaron for this sacrifice. Goes through all these steps that I just mentioned. And you get to chapter 9, verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Do you see what happened? God accepted the offering. God accepted the sacrifice. Moses and Aaron were able to enter into the tent the problem of, at the end of Exodus is solved. They're in the tent. And then God himself comes out of the tent and, and shows his glory to the people. And they fall on their faces to worship. It's mission accomplished. They are now in God's presence where there's full joy forever. This is the greatest thing that can happen to them. They now have access to God. The sacrificial system works. But the problem with the sacrificial system is that it's temporary. It had to be repeated day after day, year after year, because Aaron and the other priests, the priests that followed Aaron, they sinned. And God's people, they kept sinning. They made themselves dirty again after they had been cleaned. And so if they wanted to come back into God's presence another time, they had to start the process over. They had to offer another animal to purify the priest. And then they had to offer another animal to purify the people. Again and again and again, they had to repeat this process. And it was meant to be that way. We read that in Leviticus. Do this and then do it again and then do it again. It was a feature of the Old Covenant sacrificial system. The Old Covenant, the, the Old Testament, the sacrifices there were meant to be repeated. This was not meant to be effective permanently. And this was appropriate and right for, for Old Covenant believers. It was right for these Jews in the Old Testament to offer these sacrifices again and again, to go back to the, temp to the tabernacle, which then was replaced by the temple. It was right for them to go every Passover, to go every day of atonement, to go and offer their uh, first fruits when they had a harvest. Over and over again, that's what God wanted them to do. But it was pointing forward to something that was going to replace it. Every time these old covenant believers would go to offer this sacrifice, a piece of them would say, I want something, I want more. I want something that's longer lasting so that we don't have to keep doing this. I want a more full experience of God's presence. Which brings us to Hebrews 
the letter of Hebrews, the, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but it's called Hebrews because it's the letter to the Hebrews. It's written to Jewish Christians. These are, these are men and women who grew up in Judaism, grew up under this old covenant, but now Jesus has come. And they've, they've heard the gospel, they've turned to Jesus, received him as their Lord and Savior. They've, they've left the old covenant system and they have now become members of the new covenant, like Christians today. We are still there, members of the new covenant. But these, Jew, these Jewish Christians were being persecuted. They were being hassled. They were experiencing pain and difficulty and loss because they had come to Christ. And they were experiencing it from Jews and, and also from, uh, from Gentiles. But specifically, other Jews were attacking them and saying, you can't do this. You're wrong, and so they were making life difficult for them. And the temptation for these Jewish Christians was to drop, to drop the Christian and go back to Judaism. This is hard. It's hard to follow Jesus. There's a real cost for me, and because it's hard to follow Jesus, I'm just going to go back to Judaism. I'm going to go back to the Old Covenant because that worked for me. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, 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 don't go back. You can't go back to Judaism because it's over. The old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant, and you can't go back to it. It was the sacrificial system was good, and it was the only option before Christ. But it's not appropriate after Christ. It's like engagement versus marriage. No, when you get married, you don't think, you know, let's go back to engagement. That was better. You, you can't do it. It would be, it would be strange, but it would, it would also be wrong. It would be inappropriate. Now that Christ has come, going back to the sacrificial system means trying to be right before God on the basis of our actions. Apart from Christ, all we are left with is a works-based legalism. Before Christ came, it was right to offer sacrifices because those sacrifices were what God gave them and they were meant as a shadow that pointed forward to the substance. But once the substance comes, you leave the shadow behind. Once the eternal comes, you leave the temporary. And to go back to the temporary is wicked and, and wrong. And so for these Jewish Christians, before Jesus came, it was right to be a Jew but once Christ came, you need Christ, not the old covenant. Once the new covenant comes, you leave the old covenant behind. Let's look, look at the features of this old covenant in Hebrews 7. If you, if you read Hebrews 7, 22 to 28, you see this, this comparison, this, this compare and contrast. Here's the old covenant system, and here's how the priest... Uh, behaved. Here's what the priest was in the old covenant system, but now we have Jesus as our great high priest. And look at how he's different. The old covenant, verse 23, the former priests, these priests in the line of Aaron, these high priests, the former priests were many in number. Why are there many high priests? Because they keep dying. 
verse 23. They were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Aaron was a good high priest, but Aaron has been dead for thousands of years. Aaron can no longer bring people into God's presence because he's gone. And so Aaron had to be replaced. And then the guy that replaced Aaron had to be replaced. And on and on and on. These high priests are temporary because they are temporary, because they die. Down to verse 27. Jesus has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. What did, these, what did Aaron and these other priests do? They offered sacrifices. Sacrifices, plural. They offered a sacrifice, and then they came back the next day and offered a sacrifice. And then they came back the next day and offered a sacrifice. The day, the day of atonement comes. Day of atonement is the, the high point in the Jewish calendar. It's the day when all sins are placed on the head of this goat and, and taken care of. Aaron goes through that process. Day of atonement, purity, freedom. We're right with God but then the next year he has to do the Day of Atonement again. Continues to offer sacrifices daily. And these high priests, first they have to offer sacrifice for their own sin. Aaron was a sinner. And every high priest after Aaron was a sinner. And they themselves needed to be pure before they could help others. Just like this astronaut. Astronauts can't breathe in space. Astronauts have to get themselves ready for the spacewalk before they can prepare someone else. First, he has to offer for his own sins, and then for those of the people. The sacrifices that Aaron and those who followed him offered were by nature temporary sacrifices, first for himself and then for others. Aaron can say to... It's essentially, you have Aaron as this astronaut handing a tank full of oxygen to us, saying, here's a tank of oxygen, but it's only going to last about an hour. You can, go, you can come with me on this spacewalk, but you can only be out there for a few minutes, and then you're going to run out of oxygen. This sacrifice is a temporary sacrifice. And then finally, verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. The law is the old covenant the men who were called to be high priests, these men from the tribe of Levi, from the family of Aaron, these are sinful men. And the law appoints them as sinful men, as weak men, as flawed characters. They're not able to make this ultimate sacrifice because they themselves are broken people. They can only take God's people so far because they only have so much strength themselves. Those, that's the old covenant. That's the former priesthood with all of its limitations. You have many priests who are temporary and die. They offer daily sacrifices and they're weak like other men. They have to sacrifice first for their own sins and then for the sins of others. And again, I just want to emphasize, Old Covenant saints, 
let's put ourselves back 3,000 years, 4,000 years, whatever, old covenant saints, they would have felt grateful for the sacrificial system and the door that it opened to be reconciled to God. I can go into God's presence through this sacrifice. My sin can be forgiven through the blood of this bull or this goat or this bird. That, and God's word tells us that. The old covenant tells these people, if you offer this sacrifice, you will be forgiven. They, they would have been grateful for that. And they would have longed for it to be fulfilled for the temporary to be replaced by the eternal. Every time they strapped on that hour's worth of air, they would have longed for the day when they could just breathe freely forever instead of lugging around that heavy tank. The Old Covenant saints, they wouldn't have understood how or when this would happen, but they would have trusted that it would happen. They didn't know when God would send an eternal sacrifice. They didn't know when God would send his king, his Messiah, to make them right. They didn't know when God would send the seed of the woman to crush the offspring of the serpent, Genesis 3. They didn't know when that would happen, but they trusted that it would happen. This is how we feel about the second coming. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, we don't know how, we don't know what it's going to look like exactly, but it's happening. It's coming, and we are ready for it. We long for Jesus to come back. We just don't know when and, and the details. That's how the Old Covenant saints felt. They had the shadow, and they longed for the substance. And the author of Hebrews says, we have the substance. We have the real deal. We have the eternal high priest. Now let's look at how, how Jesus contrasts with these former priests. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests operated under the old covenant, and Jesus operates the new covenant. Jesus has the better covenant. Verse 24 23, the, pre, the former priests were temporary because they died, verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. How long is Jesus going to be the high priest of this new covenant? Forever. Always. He will never step down as priest. He will never die and need to be replaced by another priest because he continues forever. Jesus will live, Jesus will reign forever. I heard a comedian once talk about how as Christians we say forever and ever, as if forever is not long enough, right? Forever and ever, Jesus will live and hold that priesthood. And as a consequence of that, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Old covenant, a Jew comes to the priest and says, can you take me into God's presence? The priest says, yeah, I can. I can do that. Just for a couple minutes, though. 
Now we go to Jesus. We say, Jesus, can you take me into the presence of your Father? Jesus says, come on, let's go. Forever. All the way. All the way to the throne room. No more limitations. No, no more uh, time constraints. All the way to God forever. Why? Because he always, verse 25, he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the core here. So let's put it aside and we're going to talk about that on its own. Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Do you see how different Jesus is from us? How different Jesus is from the former high priests? Jesus is holy. We are not. The priests were not. Jesus is innocent. I am not. And neither are you. And neither were the priests. Jesus is unstained. We are stained. Jesus is separated from sinners. We are sinners. And Jesus is exalted above the heavens. Jesus is God. And as God, Jesus is able to take us to God. And then verse 27. The high former priests, they offer sacrifices daily. Jesus, he did this once for all. Jesus offered one sacrifice. And what is that sacrifice? He offered up himself. On Good Friday, Jesus went and gave himself. That's why the Lord's Supper, take and eat. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus gives himself as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus is not like these goats and bulls and sheep and birds. They're just animals. Jesus is God. His sacrifice is a different sacrifice. It does more than those other sacrifices. Those sacrifices buy you a few minutes in God's presence. This sacrifice is a once for all, forever. And then finally, verse 28. The law appoints men in their weakness, but the word of the oath, the new covenant, which came later than the law, the new, the new replaces the old. That new covenant appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Priests are just servants. Priests are the staff. Jesus is the son. Jesus can bring people into his father's presence. Jesus has been made perfect forever through his sacrificial death. He is the perfect sacrifice. Shadow, former priests, temporary, temporary sacrifices needed to be offered repeatedly. Substance, Jesus. Eternal priest, guarantor of a better covenant. Lives forever. Keeps that priesthood eternally. Son, not servant. Able to save to the uttermost. That's what we have in the new covenant. Which brings us back to that 
idea of Jesus as the interceder. In 25, he always lives to make intercession for them. That's, that's why Easter is good news. Easter is good news not just once a year, but 24-7, 365. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Inter- intercession literally means go between. You have procession, move forward, move toward something. Secession, Texas is always threatening to secede, separate themselves, go away from. And now you have intercede, go between. Jesus lives to go between us and God. Jesus' life purpose is to stand between a righteous, holy God and sinful, broken people like us. It's what he does all the time. Jesus sits at his Father's right hand. Romans 8, 33 and 34. I think we have it up on the screen. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Next one. That's three. I think I have it. There we go. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Next verse. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We know that Jesus is risen and reigning. He's seated at the right hand of God. Why is he at the right hand of God? So that he can intercede for us. So that he can go between us and God. Jesus sits at his Father's right hand, relating to God on our behalf. We sin, we fail, we fall short, and he says to the Father, I've paid for that. And when Jesus intercedes, it is 100% effective. Jesus' intercession, it's, it's not a pathetic, whiny plea or request. It's not Jesus standing there saying, oh, oh God, just forgive that. Ooh, that was a bad one. But could you just please look this one over? Can you please let this one go? That's what we do, right? Ooh, yeah, oh, well, okay, Jesus, okay, God, I know that, I know that Josh is really pushing you today, but can you just, just for my sake, can you let this one slide? That's not what Jesus is doing at the, at the right hand. Jesus is standing at the Father's right hand And he is making confident, sure application of a previously agreed upon agreement, right? He he and the Father have previously agreed that his blood would cover sinners. And now Jesus is standing at the Father's right hand, and I sin, you sin, and Jesus says, yeah, that's what we talked about. That's, That's what I died for. Remember, Father, of course, right? Remember that we, we agreed that my blood would cover that sin? And the Father says, yeah, I do. John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus does not have to talk the Father into anything. Jesus is not twisting the Father's arm, trying to get him to agree to something that he's really not excited about. They are one. They are of one mind, and they agree wholeheartedly. Jesus says, you sin. Jesus says, I paid for that sin. And the Father says, yes, you did. I completely agree. And it's over. How does this work itself out? What does it look like daily 
that Jesus stands as an advocate before the Father? What should this mean for us in our, in our daily walk? It works like this. We sin. We're, we're harsh with our spouse. We you cut a corner at work. You lose it with your kids or your grandkids. You harbor bitterness against somebody. You give, our, you give yourself over to fear or anxiety. It gains the upper hand. Pick, pick one, right? Pick a sin that you're prone to. You sin, and then you become aware of the sin. Maybe, maybe it's right away. Sometimes we sin, and it, as we're sinning, we know this is a sin. I shouldn't be doing this. But sometimes it's not right away. Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes you're laying in bed and you think, did I really say that? Man, I was harsh with my, with my wife this morning. Or, oh, I can't believe I did that at work. can't believe I clicked on that website. Right? We become aware of that sin. Now, what do you do? What do you do in that moment? You, you become aware of a sin. What do you do next? What you do with that sin, what do you do with that sin that you've just committed or you've just become aware of? What should happen? We should take that sin directly to Jesus. We become aware of sin and it's like a hot potato that we immediately give to Jesus. We should immediately go to him and confess what we've done. Jesus, I was, I was unkind to my spouse. Jesus, I lost it with my kids. We agree with him that what we've said or done is sinful, it's wrong, it's disobedient, it's bad. You go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I did this thing and it was a sin. No qualifications. This was a sin. And you repent of what you've done or said. Jesus, I sinned, it was sinful, and I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it. There's no excuse for what I did. And what does Jesus do in that situation? Jesus effectively intercedes. Jesus takes that sin and he says, Father, this is covered by my blood as we agreed that it would be. This person is clean. This sin is taken care of. And that's it. It's over. But what do we do instead? How do we, how do we respond to our sin most of the time? We know that that's not what happens, right? Most people don't do that, and even we Christians don't do that a lot of the times, including me. We interact with our sin in other ways. In this room, we're not tempted to go back to the old covenant. I don't see any of you offering sacrifices. If you've tried that, can you come talk to me? I, I would like to work through some stuff with you. But I, I don't see that as a temptation here, because that was... 2,000 years ago, none of us are from a Jewish background. So we're not like the Hebrews trying to go back to Judaism. No one here is, is doing that. But we are tempted to take care of that sin ourselves. We sin, and instead of agreeing with Jesus that it is sin, repenting of it and taking it directly, from him, directly to him to deal with it, we hide it. Or we minimize it or we try to make up for it by our own methods. I was harsh with my spouse. Just, let's just not talk about it. Or, I was harsh with my spouse, but it's, they were a jerk. 
It's their fault. I wouldn't be harsh with them if they wouldn't fill in the blank. We minimize it. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, it was wrong, but really it's their fault that I did it. So we minimize it. Or we try to make up for it by our own methods. I was harsh to my spouse, so now I'll just be nice to them the rest of the day. Let's just, let's just slide past it, now I'll be nice without actually apologizing. Just, just move on. Or, I was harsh with my spouse, so I'll do the dishes. Or, I'll give more money to church. Or, I will serve more at the church. I'll pray more. I'll read my Bible. That, that's okay, it'll smooth it out. God's not happy with me because I sinned? Well, I'm going to do something to make God happy with me. And ultimately, all we're doing is fixing sin with more sin. We're just compounding the guilt. And it can't work. It has never worked. And it was never meant to work. We need to live in the reality of Christ's effective intercession. It works every time. Everything else never works and only compounds our sin and guilt. We have a risen Savior who always lives to make intercession. You are either taking your sin to Jesus and it's being dealt with, or you are doing something else with your sin and it is sitting there piling up and making you more guilty. So let's go to Jesus again and again and again and again. I'm going to close with Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. The author says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we are sinners. We cannot enter into your presence because of our sin. We don't deserve it. We have thrown that opportunity away. But Jesus has made a way for us to come into your presence by his blood. We have a great high priest who has paid the price for us, who has opened the door into your throne room. I pray that we would enter in by, with confidence by the blood of Jesus. Father, help us to see when we are trying to do it on our own power and to run away from that and to run toward Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.